0: Last Sunday, I was uh, at a meeting in uh, the country of Panama with about uh, 500 theological educators from 73 different countries around the world. It was an amazing experience um, to see the nations gather and worship the Lord. Um, Plus, we were in a five-star hotel on the beach. That didn't hurt. Uh, Rough stuff, but you know, somebody's got to do it. And I was glad to be able to uh, represent uh, this part of uh, God's worshiping body there. And I'm excited about beginning now officially this interim time with you, this transitional time with you. We come into times like this with different kind of perspectives on what we think might happen or is happening. It reminds me of a story I heard of these four people on a train. Now, they were riding a train where you've seen it probably where There are seats that face each other. Sometimes there's a table in between, and so people can actually face each other. Well, there were four people. There was um, uh, a very matronly, very prim and proper grandmother and her beautiful young granddaughter on one side. Across from them was this big, burly army sergeant, and right next to him, a buck private uh, in the army, coming back from uh, some training so they were riding on the train, suddenly the train went through a tunnel. Everything went black. And in the silence, all of a sudden there was the sound of a long somewhat passionate kiss followed by the sound of a resounding slap. <laughs> well, the train came out from the tunnel and each of these four people had different looks on their faces. The grandmother was thinking, well, that Young army private took advantage of the darkness leaned over here and kissed my granddaughter and she slapped him and she should have way to go the granddaughter was thinking well this is a little strange but I guess that army sergeant big burly guy leaned over here in the dark and kissed my grandmother (laughs) and she slapped him and she should have The sergeant, whose face was beginning to turn a flaming red, was sitting there thinking, well, I guess this private leaned over in the darkness, kissed that pretty little granddaughter. She thought I did it, and she slapped me. The private was sitting there trying to keep a smile off of his face and thinking, you know, (laughs) it's not every day you can slap your sergeant. Kiss the back of your hand, slap your sergeant, and get away with it. We we all have different perspectives on things, and sometimes we're not real sure what's going on. I don't know how you feel this morning as we begin this journey together, but I hope you will join me in seeking the face of the Lord so that we all together in unity understand exactly where we're going and what it is that God is wanting to do in our midst. That is my prayer. You know, I don't know how many of you are builders or who may be familiar with with the building process. It may seem like a very simple thing, but the most important part in the process of building anything is laying a proper foundation. That is important for a couple of reasons. In fact, it's the most important thing in a building for a couple of reasons. First of all, you need to understand that any mistake you might make in the foundation will only get worse as you go up. This is called compounding defects. And it means that things only get worse, not better, if you start out wrong on the foundation. For example, a foundation of a house that may be only, let's say, three-quarters of an inch out of square and a half inch out of level doesn't seem like a a very big deal at all. In fact with your naked eye you probably can't even tell it. But if you begin to frame the walls of that house and as you go up suddenly you're now an inch and a half out of square at the top of the wall and a full inch out of level. And then when you start trying to put the roof on the building, the house, the four by eight panels of sheeting aren't going to fit, the shingles aren't going to run straight, and before you know it, everybody in Aunt Bessie is going to be able to see the mess. And it's going to ruin the look of your entire house. But the second reason why a foundation is so critically important is because the entire weight of your house rests on that foundation. So a tiny mistake that you might make in the foundation, usually if something goes wrong, it's going to end up in a disaster. And so the purpose of a foundation is to hold a house up, and it is to hold a house together. It enables that house to deal with all kinds of pressures and stresses and still remain safe. For the people who are inside. And what is true in the building of a house is also true in the building of your life and the building of my life and the building of Christ's church. This morning we're going to begin a series of messages from the book of Philippians. But before we can get into this book itself, We really do need to spend some serious time this morning looking together at some foundations. So if you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, let me invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to begin looking at some things this morning together concerning foundations. Foundations. If we don't get these foundations right as we begin this study together, then we're never going to be able to experience the kind of life that the book of Philippians says God wants us to experience. And I want to experience this kind of life. I hope you understand what I'm talking about when I talk about a certain kind of life because I've tried to communicate it in the series title, which you see there on your handout. Life doesn't have to be perfect to be wonderful. Did you know that? Life doesn't have to be perfect to be wonderful. Your life doesn't have to be perfect to be wonderful. Your family doesn't have to be perfect to be wonderful. Your kids don't have to be perfect to be wonderful. Your marriage doesn't have to be perfect to be wonderful. Your church doesn't have to be perfect to be wonderful. And Paul is going to tell us how we can get to the point where even when life is at its worst, we can look at life as being a wonderful gift from God. Now this should be some good news for you all because if you're like me, you already know that life isn't perfect, right? Life can be full of difficult things. It can be full of difficult people. Life can be full of hard things and painful things. Aggravations and irritations, headaches and heartaches. You know that. Life is full of all of those things. We can't escape those things in this life because we live in an imperfect world. But the Apostle Paul, who wrote this book, says, if you are a born-again child of God, if you are a passionate follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then life can still be wonderful even if it is not perfect. The signature verse in the book of Philippians is found in chapter 4, verse 4. You know it. Paul writes and he says, Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. And just in case you didn't get it the first time, he says, I'm going to tell you again, rejoice. Now listen, it's one thing to rejoice in the Lord when everything's going great, right? I mean, anybody can do that. But what about when life is not perfect? How do we respond then? What about when your life is not perfect? Your family, your kids, your marriage, your church, your job, your health... Listen, not, not only do most of us not rejoice when things are like that, huh, but everybody around us usually knows we're not rejoicing, right? It's, it's pretty easy to tell that we're not rejoicing most times when we go through those kinds of difficulties. Let me tell you how we usually react when life is not perfect. Or better, let's look and see how Paul says we usually react when life is not perfect because it's all throughout this book. And I hope you get to know this book well as we spend these weeks together. In chapter 1, verse 15, Paul talks about envy and rivalry. In chapter 1, verse 17, he talks about selfish ambition. Verse 28, fear. Chapter 2, verse 3, again he mentions selfish ambition and he adds conceit. Verse 14 of chapter 2, he addresses grumbling and complaining. Verse 21 of chapter 2, his focus is on believers who seek their own interest. Chapter 3, verse 19, he exposes those who have their minds set on earthly things. Chapter 4, verse 2, he identifies two women in the Philippian church, Euodia and Syntyche, who needed help in getting along with one another. Chapter 4, verse 6, he reminds us of how often we suffer from worry and anxiety. And chapter 4, verse 11, he talks about our lack of contentment. Now let me ask you a question. Anybody here besides me ever walk in any of those shoes that I just mentioned? Paul just mentioned? Sure we do. We struggle with those kinds of feelings and emotions uh, when life isn't perfect. But Paul says, no, no, listen. Even when life isn't perfect, you should have a rejoicing spirit. And he says it over and over and over again in this book. There are 104 verses in the book of Philippians. And of those 104 verses, Paul uses the word joy, rejoice, be glad, or be of good cheer at least 17 times. On average, that's about once every six verses. And Paul is saying to us this morning, even when life isn't perfect, even when life is tough, you can still rejoice. You see, Paul wasn't writing this letter from his easy chair. He wasn't kicked back in a place of comfort and security, peeling grapes and saying, hey, you guys ought to be happy. No. When Paul wrote this book, where was he? He was in a prison cell in Rome, waiting on the verdict of the Roman emperor to see whether or not his head would be cut off. His freedom had been taken away. His friends had been taken away. His ministry had been taken away. He was on trial to see if his very life would be taken away. And yet he says to us, the tone and the tenor of my life will not be set by these things that I can worry about, get upset about, fret over, be mad about. Instead, Paul says, I will rejoice in the Lord. Those things were there. They were real. Paul wasn't pretending they weren't there. Yet he said, I can still rejoice in the Lord. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I want to get in on that. I want to get in on that. I want to be able to live my life in that kind of way. Well, how do we do it? Well, the same way Paul did it. By making sure we have some critical, spiritual, and theological foundations built firmly into our lives. Now, I'm going to let you in on a secret this morning, okay? I like secrets. I like to tell secrets. So you better not tell me anything (laughs) if if you don't want it to get out. I like secrets. You're going to hear one just about every Sunday. Here's the secret for today, okay? Now don't you tell anybody because this is a secret just between you and me. Here's the secret. Most of the issues that keep you and me from experiencing this kind of joy-filled life, you can fill in the blank here if you want to, most of these things are profoundly theological in nature. They are profoundly theological in nature. Now, I don't want you to get all fearful about the word theology here. Uh, Theology just refers to God. We're talking about who God is, what God is like, and most importantly, what God has to say to you and to me through His Word. So theology is simply the study of God, His Word, and His ways. And most of the time as believers, when we struggle with stuff, it is right here. It is a profoundly theological issue. Either, number one, we do not know what God's Word or God's way is when it comes to dealing with a particular situation, need, or circumstance. Or number two, maybe we do know what God's Word is and God's way is, but we decide we're going to go with another word. Or we're going to go with another way. Usually, our own. Not Paul. He knew God. He knew God's Word. He knew God's ways. And he had built his life upon those foundations. And that is what enabled him to say, in the worst of times, I am rejoicing. In the Lord church this is not the power of positive thinking this is the power of biblical thinking this is thinking theologically this is bringing God his word and his ways into the very center of our thought processes so that when we deal with the challenges of life we're not dealing with them out of our own wisdom we're out of our own desires but rather, rather we are drawing from God who he is what he is like and what he has to say so we're going to be looking for several sundays at these biblical theological foundations this morning we're going to look at the first one it's found in the first two verses the first two verses of philippians Chapter 1, look at these verses with me. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot in these two verses. We're going to look this morning at the very first foundation. And foundation number one is this. The first thing we've got to settle, the first thing that we have got to build into our lives if we're going to experience the kind of life that God's Word says He intends for us to experience is to settle our posture before the Lord Jesus Christ. I must settle my posture. If I'm going to be able to, to rejoice in the Lord always, then the very first thing I must do is assume a critical posture before Christ it is a posture of absolute submission it is a positive of complete surrender to his lordship and Paul puts it this way in verse 1 when he identifies himself and his companion Timothy by saying simply Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus now that sounds like a very simple statement doesn't it Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. But my friends, if we do not get this right, if we do not understand the profound theological significance of what Paul is saying here, then your life will never be built on the kind of underpinning that is necessary for God to be able to do the great work that He wants to do in your life and mine. Now, I don't want to disappoint you this morning, but we're not going to go any further than just this little part of verse 1 this morning. So let's stop and make sure we understand the theological significance of these words, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul is saying this, when I think of my life as a follower of Christ, there is a posture that I must assume before Him that becomes one of the great theological foundations of my life. It keeps my life spiritually square and level so that everything fits together in life the way it is supposed to. It supports me and it sustains me and it holds me up so that when the storms and the stresses and the pressures of life come my way, I don't fall. I don't fold. And Paul says this posture is the posture of a servant. Now, in the New Testament, there are five words that can legitimately be translated servant. And they have all kinds of different shades of meaning. But the word that Paul uses here does not really mean servant in the way that you and I probably understand that word. When we hear the word servant, usually we think of somebody who's free to come and go. In other words, you show up one day, you work for somebody, you serve them. Then you're free to go home and do what you want to do until you come back the next day and serve that person again. Well, there is a word in the New Testament that conveys that kind of idea. But that is not the word that Paul uses here. The word he uses here is a much narrower word. It is a much more specific word. It is the word doulos and it literally means a slave. It literally means a slave. A doulos was either born into slavery or he was sold into slavery, but in either case Listen, a slave was not free to come and go as he pleased. He was bound to his master in a relationship that could not be broken except by death. And as such, the Dulos lived under four primary Realities. I want to share those with you quickly this morning. Here's number one. The Dulos lived under the reality of absolute and exclusive ownership by a master. Absolute exclusive ownership by a master. A slave was not hired, a slave was owned. He was owned. He was the property. Of his master. He had no life of his own. He had no possessions of his own. He had no will of his own. He belonged to someone else and it was an absolute exclusive singular ownership. There was no shared ownership. There was one master and one master only. So there was no collaboration And there was no competition when it came to determining what a slave would do. What a slave did was the prerogative of the master. There was no one else in the picture. And when it comes to my relationship and your relationship with Jesus Christ, look at what Paul says. Paul says that is the posture we must take. Paul and Timothy, servants, slaves... Of the Lord Jesus Christ, I take the position, I take the posture of a doulos, a servant, a slave, where Jesus becomes my master, and He owns me and everything that I have. Look at First Corinthians chapter six, verses nineteen through twenty. Paul writing there says you're not your own. Can you let those words sink in a minute? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. See as a follower of Christ, my life is not my own. My will is not my own. I belong to someone else. I was purchased, you were purchased by Christ and for Christ by His precious blood that was poured out for you and me on the cross of Calvary. He owns you. He owns me. And it is an exclusive ownership. It is not a dual ownership. It is not Jesus calling the shots sometimes and then me calling the shots sometimes. No. I have no desires of my own. I have no will of my own. I have no property of my own. I belong solely, exclusively, and absolutely to someone else. Jesus Christ is my absolute, unquestioned, unchallenged master. That's what it means to be a servant of Christ. It means absolute and exclusive ownership by Him as our Master. Second reality, the doulos lived under the requirement of consistent availability, constant availability, and instant obedience to the Master. Constant availability, instant obedience to the Master. A slave had no say about when he would do something, or if he would do something. A slave didn't have those options. He was totally at the master's disposal. And he was expected to respond instantly. And he was expected to respond with one singular action. Obedience. Whatever the master said... That is what the slave did. And this morning, if I dare to name the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior of my life, then He expects the exact same thing from me. Constant availability Instant obedience. Look at what Jesus said to those who would follow him in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. What did he say? He said, Why do you call me Lord? Which means Master. Why would you even call me Master if you're not going to do what I say? As a doulos, as a slave, you are to respond with one singular action, obedience. If you do not have a slave, you do not have a master. And you do not have a master or a lord if you do not have a slave. They are two sides of one coin. The apostle Peter makes the same thing very plain in 1 Peter 1, verse 2, where he writes and he says, You were chosen according to the purpose of God the Father, and you were made a holy people by His Spirit to do what? To obey Jesus Christ. As His followers, He demands and He deserves from me constant availability and instant obedience. That is what it means to be a doulos, a servant, a slave. Third reality, a slave lived his life under the overriding expectation that he would please his master in all things if a slave received a direct command then he was expected to obey it but if he didn't receive a direct command maybe there was a day when when the master didn't have a specific order for his slave. still that slave was expected to know the will of the master he was expected to know the desires of his master he was expected to know the heart of his master enough well enough so that all of his life was lived in such a way that it pleased the master. That was his purpose. It's our purpose. Galatians 1.10 Paul says, Am I now seeking the approval of man? Or am I seeking the approval of God? Am I t- still trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant. I would not be a doulos of God. Paul says, I'm not here to please myself. I'm not here to please other people. I live my life for one singular reason. My overriding purpose, my objective, my goal, my passion, my mission in life is to please my Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's a fourth reality which is really in some ways a summary of the other three but we put them all together and it helps us I believe. A master had such a powerful role in the life of the doulos that the identity of the doulos himself and his sole reason for living was inextricably, inseparably linked to the identity and the purposes of his master. You weren't known as... Joe, or Bill, or Mary, or Edna. If you were a doulas, you were known as the one who belonged to this master or that master. And that is how we are to be known. The doulas had no identity of his own apart from his master. He had no purpose other to ensure that the will of the master was carried out. And that's what Paul says in, in one of the verses that I try every day to understand better and begin incorporating into my life, and that is Galatians 2.20. And I put it up here. This I don't know if you're familiar with the passion translation or not. Some people ask me, so why do you use so many translations? Because I try to find the one that speaks most clearly in language we can understand that conveys to us exactly what Scripture is saying and what it would have meant to those who originally heard it. And I want you to look at this with me. In fact, I want you to read it with me out loud. Can we do that? Let's just read it out loud together. Paul wrote and he said this. Go with me. My old identity has been co-crucified with Messiah and no longer lives. For the nails of His cross crucified me with Him. And now the essence of this new life is no longer mine. For the Anointed One lives His life through me. We live in union as one. My new life is empowered by faith in the Son of God who loves me so much that He gave Himself for me and dispenses His life into mine you see if you were if Paul were here today and we could sit him down in a chair and we could say Paul tell us about your plans in life Paul would say "I, I don't have any Okay, Paul, well, well, tell us about your goals in life. What are your goals? He'd say, I don't have any. Oh, come on, Paul. I mean, surely you've got to have some plans, some goals, some hopes and dreams for your life. What are they? And Paul would say, no, I keep trying to tell you, I don't have any. Oh, come on, Paul. Why are you here then? What is the purpose of your life? What are you living for? And Paul would say, I'm glad you ask. And I believe he would quote Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, which says, "For to me to live is Christ." You see, if you wanted to talk to Paul about Paul's plans and Paul's goals, Paul's hopes and Paul's dreams, he wouldn't have anything to talk to you about. But if you wanted to talk to him about Christ's plans and Christ's goals and Christ's hope and Christ's dreams, then Paul would talk to you all day long because everything he did, he did for Christ. His life was absolutely consumed with Christ. His identity was caught up in Christ. He had no identity of his own. It was inextricably linked to Jesus Christ so that Paul absolutely lost his life in Jesus. Church, this is what it means to be a servant of Christ. It means He is the master. I am the doulas. I am the servant. I am the slave. I absolutely and exclusively belong to Him. He gets my constant availability and my instant obedience. I live my life to please Him, not myself. My very identity and purpose in life is inseparably wrapped up in who Christ is. I need to tell you something this morning, church. This is not a higher life. This is not a deeper life. This is normal Christianity. This is normal New Testament Christianity. But I have to tell you, this is not popular talk. Even among Christians. In contemporary, I got my boots on this morning, so if you want to kick me, you're only going to hurt yourself. So don't do it. In our contemporary version of a very materialistic, self-centered, hedonistic, North American, Christianity today, our thinking about Christianity often has anything and everything to do with everything but slave language. We don't hear that. I would bet this morning, if you think back to the time when someone shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with you, I bet you did not hear I would like to invite you to become a slave of Jesus Christ. I bet you didn't hear that. I bet you didn't hear I invite you to give up your independence and your freedom to do whatever you want to do. I invite you to abandon your life. I invite you to abandon your rights. I invite you to submit yourself totally to another's will and be absolutely owned and controlled by Jesus Christ. That is not what we hear, is it? We hear about forgiveness. We hear about discovering our great purpose in life. We hear about reaching our highest potential. We hear about going to heaven. We hear about how much Jesus loves us, how he wants to be our friend, our burden bearer. Our deliverer. And listen, all of that is true. Please don't misunderstand me. It is gloriously, wonderfully true, but it is not true in isolation. It is only true. It is only true in a relationship where he is the master and I am the doulos. I am the slave. You say, Preacher, I don't want to be a slave. I don't like the sound of that. Well, let me let you in on the truth this morning. Here it is. You're going to be a slave to something. I'm going to be a slave to something. If your posture this morning is to assert yourself, if your posture this morning is to rise up so that what you want... And what you think is the most important thing in your life, if your posture is to rise up like that, then you're going to be a slave to your work. You're going to be a slave to your habits. You're going to be a slave to your money. You're going to be a slave to your comfort and security. You're going to be a slave to your desires or a hundred different things. If that's your posture. But if your posture... Listen if your posture is to get down low and look up into the eyes of a master who loves you. By the way, your master is a king. And say to him, Lord, You are my master. I am Your servant. I will lose my life in You then you have begun to build into your life one of these central and critical foundations that you must have for God to be able to do the great work He wants to do in your life. Look at this final verse from Romans chapter 6 verses 20 through 22. Paul writes and he says, In the past you were slaves to sin. And you were. I was. And you did not even think about doing right. You did evil things and now you're ashamed of what you did. Did those things help you? Your slavery to other stuff? Did that help you? Paul says, no. No, that stuff only brought death. But now you're free from sin. And you have become slaves of God. And the result is that you live only for God. This is the great foundation that we must lay. You're going to be a slave to something. This morning, I invite you and God invites you to become a slave of Christ. To say to Him, you are my exclusive and absolute owner. To say to Him, you get my constant availability and instant obedience the passion of my life will be to please You. And my identity will be wrapped up in You. I will lose myself in service to You. Let me tell you, church, we won't go anywhere. We won't go anywhere if we don't get this basic elementary fundamental, biblical, theological truth down. If it is not part of the very foundation of who we are. I want you to bow your heads with me this morning as we pray. Father, this morning we come face to face with something that maybe we don't think about a lot or we think is... Something reserved for... Gosh, this is reserved for the missionary who goes to deep, dark Africa. This is reserved for the pastor. This is reserved for those spiritual leaders that we put on a pedestal and and say, wow, they are totally committed. Father, would You help us to realize this morning this is for every one of us. It is the heart. It is the foundation of what it means to be a Christian. Forgive us, Lord, for weak, shallow, anemic, superficial expressions of what it means to be a follower. Of the one whose name is above every name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Forgive us for giving him anything less than all that we are and all that we have. And Lord, as we seek to move forward individually as followers of Christ, as we seek to move ahead as the church of Jesus Christ in this place, oh God, would you help us to build deep and strong this foundation of understanding of who You are and who we are. Lord, that it is only in following You as Master that we will ever get to the point where, like Paul, we can say, no matter what happens, I rejoice. I rejoice in the Lord. Father, if there's someone here this morning within the sound of my voice and they have never taken a step of faith, they've never come to the cross of Christ, they've never in a personal life-changing way bowed their will, bowed their heart before this King of Kings and said, I am a sinner, I am separated from you, I need your forgiveness. If they have never asked you to become Lord and Master of life, if they have never received your gift of eternal life, if they don't know what it means, to have a personal relationship with you. Oh, Father, I pray this morning in these moments, that person would make that decision to follow Christ. Lord, I pray you'll give them the courage in just a moment to step out from wherever they are, walk down one of these aisles, come and take my hand and say, Pastor, I don't understand everything, but I know I need Jesus. I know something's missing in my life. God, would you give that person the courage? And then, Lord, for those of us who've known you and maybe walked walked with you for decades, Oh, it is so easy, God, to get complacent. It is so easy to get in a spiritual rut. It is so easy to say, I've done my part. Help us to remember this morning. The relationship between master and slave is a relationship that can only be broken by death. Help us to realize, Lord, that even when we take the posture of a slave... We don't give up the relationship of a child. We are your children as well, and you love us, and you want the best for us. But help us to understand, Lord, it is only out of that relationship of master and slave that you can do all you want to do. So, Lord, may we make decisions today that would be pleasing to you, that would bring honor and glory to Christ, that would make our lives useful in your hands Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Would you join me in standing? This altar's open. I'm here. David's down here at the front. If, If you just want to come and pray, if you want to put down a spiritual marker this morning, if you want to say, God, I've drifted far away from this idea of what it means to be a slave of Christ. If you need to make a commitment to Him this morning, this is your time. Would you come?